As he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offsprings of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated, please. Well, good morning, everyone. As Randy um, shared with you, my name is Don Heckert, and I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Community. In particular, I am the pastor who cares for families, for parents and children and students, and, and I get to spend a lot of time with them. But it's my joy to be spending time with you this morning in the big room. So um, I just encourage you, if you have your Bible with you, go ahead, pull it out, open up to John 8. We're going to be there in just a few minutes. But before we get there, I just want to take a minute to introduce a little bit about myself. So maybe we don't know each other yet, and this will give us a little something in common. Well, growing up in my family, we rarely went to the movies. But in May of 1977, my father took my siblings and me to a movie that would change our lives and the way we would play forever. Um, the lead character lived a pretty isolated life on a family farm, which was very relatable to my childhood. And his dream was to be part of something bigger, to be the hero of a story, and to fight for freedom. Well, Luke Skywalker was everything my siblings and I wanted to be and do. He was the good guy on the quest to defeat the empire. He was a wide-eyed longing for freedom um, beyond the farm made him an endearing character to me, along with his sweet reference to the Womp Rats back home. Luke would become a rising star in the rebellion. But first, he would have to spend time with Master Yoda, who trains Luke to face the internal demons that will hold him in bondage. His fears, his pride, and the question, who is my father? Well, only then, by answering these questions, can he begin participating in bringing freedom about to the rest of the galaxy. Don't we all want to be on the front lines of freedom? I mean, that's the part that made Luke so endearing to me. We want to fight for freedom. And today, our series is called Signs of Life, and freedom is one of those signs of life. Luke and the Jewish leaders have something in common, and that they are both going to be fighting against an empire. But they also will both have to come face to face with their ties to evil. In our scripture reading today, you're going to hear the word Jews, and the word Jews is actually referring to the Jewish leaders. And the Jewish leaders play two roles. They are not only the protectors of God's law, but they are also the authorities. The Pharisees, or as the Jewish leaders are also called, are called men of discipline because they have spent their whole lives focusing on learning 
and studying and teaching the scriptures to their followers. For generations, they have stood on the front line for God. Now, it's important for us to remember this. God has been silent for 400 years before Jesus arrived. And in this gap of time, the relationship between God and his leaders has grown very silent and very spread out. They have been separated from God in some ways that they do not even understand. And in this moment, because of that, the Jewish leaders are questioning Jesus and his claims. See, Jesus says he is from the Father. Jesus says God's words are my words. Jesus is performing miracles throughout the story of John in which he says it's through God's authority. Jesus is enemy number one to the Jewish leaders. And the Jewish leaders are discussing already his destruction. They plan to follow and confront Jesus at every single turn because they feel it is their duty to protect God's honor and his word. They are following so closely to Jesus that they are starting to believe, as verse 30 said in our text this morning, there is something to Jesus. So let's begin there. If you have your Bible, I encourage you, take it out. Um, go to John, that's the fourth gospel in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you're from the farm, you end it with, hold my horse while I get on. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, hold my horse while I get on. Seriously, that's how I learned it in Sunday school. Okay. <laughs> So start with me in verse 30, chapter 8. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. These words of Jesus remind me of the burger method strategy. It was something I learned early on in my teaching career. Um, it's when you have to give really difficult news to someone. The burger method goes like this. You take the meat, the hard stuff you have to say to someone, and you sandwich it between two buns, two positive things. And we see that starting right here in this text that I've just read. He begins with the first positive. The bottom bun is this. Some of you believe. It might be small, but you believe. And then Jesus begins addressing the meat of the action, the difficult part. He says, if you want to truly be my disciple, you will abide in my word. Now, here's the part that Jesus knows for the Jewish leaders is going to be very hard for them to swallow. Because abiding is not one simple step. To abide, the Jewish leaders are first going to have to accept Jesus is from God. And then they're going to have to decide, I am going to trust and serve him. Now, they are not ready to do this. And they are in a very tough situation in this conversation. They believe Jesus has done some miracles, but they are not ready to commit to Jesus for their salvation or their freedom. They are not ready to commit to Jesus as God's sons and act as disciples on his behalf. And as leaders, the leaders are processing what they are hearing. Jesus offers them the ultimate top bun. I will give you freedom and you will be free indeed. Now, I'm sure none of you have ever been part of a tough conversation. But if you have, what you know is this. There's this inner turmoil that begins happening when you're in the middle of one of these conversations. Someone's addressing you with this difficult news, and inside your head, you are trying so hard to process what they are saying to you. And suddenly, 
It moves from your head to your heart what is being spoken. And finally, your gut begins to check your head and your heart, and you have feelings. And the Jewish leaders, Jesus is saying, you have deep feelings, and your feelings are those of murder for me. They are not ready. And Jesus is addressing the fight that is inside each and every one of us. The freedom to know God and be known by God is available. But the spiritual brokenness holds each and every one of us captive. See, the real fight for freedom is not outside of us, but it's within us. Jesus' words to trust him are frustrating to these leaders. Their inner dialogue must be on overload, and they're asking all kinds of questions like this. Like, um, who is Jesus that he can define who God is? Who is Jesus to say, I know truth, I am truth? Who is Jesus that he thinks that he knows who I am? The leaders are prepared to do battle with him. They are ready to uphold God's honor. They have spent their entire lives studying Torah, defending God's instruction and teaching in the synagogue. And Jesus' call to abide in them rubs them wrong. Because at the core, it addresses the fact that they are not as aware of who God is as they believe. The leaders respond to Jesus with this realization in verse 33, and they point out the most interesting thing. They say, hey, we are the offspring of Abraham. We have spiritual freedom. We have never experienced bondage. And here's the real problem. Abraham's descendants believe they are in God's exclusive club. These leaders are very comfortable riding on the coattails of Abraham and receiving all the spiritual benefits and the perks that were promised to him without doing anything to recognize God themselves. Their position within the community has given them a sense of entitlement and power and control, all of which are now barriers for them to act and to know God himself. These leaders, they cannot see that the enemy has twisted their work and their identities and that he is causing separation between them and God. They believe that they are spiritually superior to all of their neighbors. But Jesus is going to reframe this conversation to point out no one is free from sin, not even the Jewish leaders. See, sin permeates, it stains, and it spreads. It begins in one part of our life, and then it moves into the deepest parts of us, where our subconscious takes over, and suddenly we are not aware of how fear, shame, accolades, success, and idols that we have cultivated are playing a part in our lives. We can be oblivious to how the 35,000 choices we make each and every day can feed the areas of sin or self that Satan wants us to act on. Satan is using these things to not only shape our identities, but he's using them to hold us in bondage. For example, we can love our work. We can be excited about our work, but our work can also be very dangerous to our freedom. We can allow our roles at work to become our identity for our purpose. We can bask in our titles, and we can use those titles to control others. 
We can also begin to make little choices between what is right and wrong. And we can become so off in those little decisions that we cannot even see how far we have gone from what is truth. Sometimes we make our work our ultimate and we don't even realize the bondage that we have slowly submitted ourselves to and how far we are from the voice of God who made us for the purpose of work. That same bondage, though, can also impact our spiritual lives. See, we're all enslaved to something. Sin, self, heritage, law, fear, guilt. It goes on and on and on. For each of us, it's something different. And Becky Pippert says it in this way. She says, whatever controls us is our Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by acceptance. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of ourselves. Sadly, our tendency, like the religious leaders of Jesus' time, is to deny or to be blinded to see how we are enslaved. We can be so caught up in ourselves that we no longer recognize what has become the Lord of our lives. We can falsely assume that right now our presence in this building and the church is abiding enough that we don't need to live out our faith beyond these walls. We can create unrealistic rules and expectations for ourselves and for others with our spiritual disciplines that they will hold us in bondage that we were never meant to have. We can impose our spiritual standards on others. We can become so radical in our beliefs that there is no room for grace or forgiveness with anyone who seems to think differently than us about schooling, sexuality, justice, or human rights. We can be so caught up in what we believe is right that we may not recognize, in fact, we have become slaves. Our idea of freedom through free will leaves us exposed to the one who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. John is going to speak about this person who comes to do those things in John chapter 10 when he talks about the shepherd and the thief. My big brother Thad, he's a shepherd, that's him. He has a huge flock of sheep that he cares for daily. He knows that without proper fencing and care, all those sheep can easily go astray and they could be destroyed. I observed him not long ago in his dog alley in a sheep competition. And the image of the sheep and the shepherd doing this work together astounded me. As the shepherd, Thad's commands to the sheepdog helped to guide these sheep through various obstacles. There was a path that I could not see, but the shepherd knew, and the sheep were to take. The final task, though, was for the sheep to enter into this pen, a safe pen that was the ground inside this pen, you guys, it was laden with all the best sheep treats ever. It was the milk and honey of sheep treats. But the most interesting thing happened as these sheep went near that pen. They hesitated, and then they scattered, and they ran away. And I found it so fascinating that their instinct was to deny themselves safety, goodness, and rest with the shepherd's care. But I also recognized in that moment that I myself, internally, 
often flee from that for independence, fake independence. And I do not choose the rest that the Savior offers me. Jesus, the good shepherd, leads us to abundant living. In Psalm 23, it talks about the freedom that we will get to experience as the flock with Jesus as our shepherd and the freedom of having water and rest and food and restoration for our soul. And on the opposite side, the enemy, the master of lies, on the other hand, leads us to places of isolation. He causes confusion inside of us in our spirit, and he destroys our key relationships. The work of Jesus to offer us freedom from within is more powerful, though, than that of the enemies to blind, bind, or build walls that can hold us captive. I wonder, do you recognize any areas of your life where freedom is holding you captive? See, we all begin building our own little mini kingdoms around work or family or success or identity or desires or spiritual expectations. And then we become captives to the things that we think are most freeing. And then we are held back. It's not about having limitless choices. It's about choosing the right limit. The shepherd tends his flock, but the, sheep, the thief comes to steal kill and destroy it. We have to be aware of who offers us freedom and the cost. Again, in verse 33, the leaders point out the fact that we are the offspring of Abraham. We are the seeds of Abraham. We claim Abraham as our heir. But there's a big difference because Abraham was called by God and he obeyed God's instructions to leave his family and move to a new land. Abraham would receive a son from God and then place that exact same son on the altar when God asked him to. The difference here is that Abraham was willing to not only listen to God, but to obey God at every turn when he asked him. And this was the source of Abraham's freedom with God. But these Jewish leaders that are claiming Abraham barely are a reflection of who Abraham is now. I thought it'd be fun to share with you, um, I want you to understand this, this difference in that Abraham and his Jewish descendants that are standing before Jesus have, by modern day calculations, about 81 generations between them. 81 generations. We know that even one generation, there can be a lot of change in culture and ways. And we know that we can be, expect to look less and less and behave less and less like our ancestors even a good guy like Abraham. Thanks to my Uncle Dan and Ancestry.com, I did a short dive into my family lineage. And according to my uncle's research, my most distant relative was from the year 400. Her name is Jinnadad. She was married to Lorne Moore, who is also the king of Delrita and Scotland. And according to my Uncle Dan's research, are descendants of King Arthur. Cool, right? But guys, if Jinnadad and I are relatives, it places me about 81 generations also from her. And I have to tell you, I'm pretty sure that Overland Park and Camelot don't have a lot in common. And I'm also sure that the greatest quest I've ever had was find Clorox wipes during COVID. You have to understand that there's a lot of time that's passed here and that this is not something that passes down from generation to generation like eye color or hair color. Our spiritual choice is not dependent 
on the distant relative or even my father. Neither of them, their spiritual choices, can make a difference in my spiritual relationship with God. That is what I am called to do in order to have freedom. So I have to recognize my father. As Jesus is reframing this conversation, he's doing it away from Abraham, and he's pushing the leaders towards the one who is at work, building a relationship with them. Let's pick up again, reading in verse 34, if you have your Bible. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. This household language of Jesus' culture emphasizes the place of a slave in comparison to that of a son. As slaves, our lives are very temporary. We are subject to the one who controls our freedom. We have no inheritance. But a son, he receives the father's inheritance. The son, unlike a slave, has ultimate freedom to come and go. Galatians 4 says that when the Son offers us the Spirit, it allows us to become the adopted sons and daughters of the Father. And through that, we gain intimate conversation with the Father. We get to have the full inheritance of the Father. As a son sent by Jesus, only Jesus has the power to set one free from sin. And Jesus' words right there in that moment display his intimacy with God and also his intimate knowledge of the hearts of the Jewish leaders. Jesus sees the Father who has turned them away from God inside of them. He's pointing out the Father that has blinded them to the one who's standing in front of them. The leaders refuse to believe, receive, or love Jesus. So Jesus points out their stubbornness and the characteristics of their true father who lies and murders. And he does it beginning in verse 39. If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he who sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. There's a sign that hangs in my house. It says, sometimes when I open my mouth, my mother comes out. Mom, if you're watching, you are not Satan. She's just a strong woman. But guys, this is what Jesus is saying to the Jewish leaders. When you open your mouths, I hear your father come out. He's in your lies. He's in your half-truth. He's in the way that you're deceiving. He's in the murder that you are speaking about. Satan's plan always has two parts. His first part is to separate us from God, to desire in our hearts autonomy. 
And then when we ha he has that, he says, I'm going to go in and I'm going to change your way of thinking. I'm going to make you begin to wonder what is good and what is wrong. And once he has us defining good and evil over again without trusting God, he sees that he has us in bondage. We see this, um, in, in, if we go all the way back in Genesis to chapter 3, in Adam and Eve, and Eve was so right there for the picking for Satan. First, Satan challenges her about God's instruction around what she was free to eat. Then, once he's got her, he coaxes her to redefine good and, either, good and evil. We see it also in the next generation of Adam and Eve's son, Cain. He became so envious in chapter 4 of Genesis of God's blessing over his brother Abel's offering that he murdered Abel, even though God warned Cain with his words in chapter 4, verse 6, be mindful who stirs in your heart. God spoke to Cain, why this tantrum, Cain? Why this sulking? If you do well, won't you be accepted? And if you don't do well, sin is lying in wait for you, ready to pounce. It's ready to get out of you. It's ready to master you. Satan's lies and misdirections reappear over and over in Scripture. God's words to Cain could have been the same words that he could have been speaking to the Jewish leaders and perhaps even to us. God sees the division and the autonomy that the enemy loves to create, and he points out that the sin inside of Cain is just bursting to get out. Spoiler alert, you guys. Luke Skywalker, the ultimate good guy of my childhood, is about to come face to face with his father. He does this in the uh, movie Empire Strikes Back, which is also one of the most um, iconic scenes and the greatest plot twist to a whole generation. We were shocked by this moment. Luke is battling with the enemy Darth Vader, and Vader is taunting Luke at every turn. He's saying to Luke first, it's useless to resist me, Luke. And then he says, I don't want to destroy you. Hey, Luke, you don't even know the power you possess. You can come with me, and I will train you, and together we will rule. And after he said all these things, he pauses and he asks the question, who is your father, basically? I have watched this scene many times. I am from a nerd family. I've already told you, Star Wars is our thing, Elvis is our thing, okay? So I've seen this, I've seen this over and over again, but it wasn't until recently, okay, a couple weeks ago, it was a marathon of Star Wars movies, we were watching them all through order, and I was watching this scene again, and it struck me how when he's being told, I am your father, Luke's first reaction, it's kind of quiet, it's disbelief, it's like this, no, no, that can't be true. And then once Vader said that to him, Vader takes it down another notch and he says to him, search yourself. Search yourself. You know it. 
And then we see that extreme visceral response from Luke as he starts crying out, no. Because first he's confronting him. Oh, here I am. I'm standing in front of you. And then Luke begins to recognize there are parts of this guy I do behave like. I do act like him and I speak like him in some ways. And it's so pronounced that Luke cannot help but scream out. For the Jewish leaders, the words of Jesus that their father is the devil is as visceral as Luke's uh, scream of, no! They are simultaneously being made aware of whose they are and how they are being used. The truth of this confrontation, though, does not turn the leader's hearts towards Jesus. But it only confirms that they are prepared to pick up stones and throw them at Jesus by the end of this chapter. There is a real enemy in our world. He only speaks lies. Truths cannot live in him. Lies are his weapon, and he uses them to give us false happiness, to distort the small things to be the main things in our lives. He leads us to cheat to get promotions at work, or to deceive and lie and prevent lust moving into our marriages in ways that causes sadness. He can also destroy us with depression and shame or help us to stand in self-righteous judgment of others. Satan's offer of bigger and better of everything we think will have happiness attached, but it's all empty. Satan's ways are subtle, and we don't recognize the cost that we are paying for the choices that we are subconsciously making. The enemy's lies can lead us to believe Jesus is the threat to our freedom. That following him leads to a restrictive life where there is no joy or abundance. But in Live No Lives, John Mark Homer says it this way, for Jesus, the devil is an archetype of a villain who is hell-bent on destruction. He just wants to watch the world burn. His motto, tear it all down. Wherever he finds life, he tries to stamp it out. Beauty, deface it. Love, corrupt it. Unity, fragment it. Human flourishing, push it to anarchy or tyranny. Either one will do. His anti-life, pro-death, pro-chaos agenda is an insatiable fire. Throughout the chronicles of history, we have seen the impact of the enemy's lies on taking captives. He never grows weary, and he knows all of our weaknesses. The daily news is filled with stories of greed, self-preservation, and destruction of individuals who are just too caught up to see the cost of freedom from the father of lies. Do you recognize that cost of freedom? And the way the enemy is lying and deceiving you and causing destruction in your life? There's good news here. The truth sets us free for more. In this passage, Jesus confronts the leaders and that he speaks truth and that he is truth. He has never once wavered in his candor and he has never offered any of us less than all of himself. Read with me Jesus' final words to the Jewish leaders, beginning in verse 45. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? 
If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is because you are not of God. The greatest weapon against the enemy's lies is truth. Truth is the only thing that has the power to set us free, to reflect reality. The Jewish leaders' hearts were so entrenched in their world that they could not recognize that God's voice was calling them to respond. They could not believe in Jesus, and they are willing to kill him now. Lies are so elusive, but truth is not. Jesus is sent from above. He stands before us. He sees our hearts, and he offers us freedom from the enemy's captivity. I don't know if you guys have ever heard this story or you know who um, Charles Blondin is. But he's a very famous French acrobat. And he was the first man to ever cross over the Niagara Falls on a tightrope. And the story goes that on June 30th, um, 1859, Charles Blondin um, would not only cross over the Niagara Falls once, but he would actually do this over and over again. And he would do this in front of large crowds. He would continue to perform these big aerial feats. And one of those times he crossed, he did a handstand while he was going across. He pushed a wheelbarrow of rocks while he was going across. He actually sat at a table and um, prepared himself an omelet as he crossed. Now, all of this is over Niagara Falls, which is roaring, foaming water that's powerful. But his final feat, one of his greatest feats, was that he took his manager on his back and crossed the Niagara Falls to one side and then to the other. Now, the legend goes that when he got back, he looked at this man as he put the manager down that was standing next to him and he said, do you believe I can do that with you? To which the man responded, of course I believe that. I just watched you do it. And then he said to him, then hop on. I'll carry you. And the man's response was, not on your life. <laughs> now, that man's response to Blondin of not on your life often mirrors the response of the leaders to Jesus and perhaps ourselves. We say this because there's just too much to lose. We've worked so hard to build our identities, our accomplishments, our autonomy, the cost of freedom we want to say to Jesus, is just too high of a cost to offer that you would carry us, that we would trust you enough to lead us in that way. So rather than trusting Jesus to carry us away from the powerful sin that is bubbling up in us, that's attempting to drown us in enslavement, we look at Jesus and all that he's done through his death and through his resurrection and how far he has come from beside the Father to offer us freedom, and we respond to him, not on your life. There might be parts of you where you are so willing to say yes to him, but there are still parts of you that he is trying to break through and to rescue you from your bondage. He says, I have come to give you freedom. If you trust me, you will know truth, and it will be freedom indeed. 
I want to take a minute before we continue on in worship to have us process this personally. I invite you to get comfortable where you are and to place your hands in front of you to receive what Jesus wants to say to you in this time of guided prayer. Just close your eyes. Relax for a moment. Father, we acknowledge we have been set free for freedom in Christ. And we offer you these words from our hearts with thanksgiving. Father, we turn over the places in our lives where we are driven by perfection and in obedience that keep us separated by you because of your desires. We lay them before you alone. Father, we know it's the cross of Christ not our progress or performance that makes us pleasing to you. But living in light of that truth can be so hard for us daily. We struggle to live in the freedom for which we have been set free. Let us hear you now in this stillness. Speak the words to us. You are free. May we claim these words from Isaiah 43. Do not be afraid. I've redeemed you. I've called your name and you are mine. When you're in over your head, I'll be there with you. When you're in rough waters, you will not go down. When you're between a rock and a hard place, it won't be a dead end. Because I am God, your personal God, the Holy of Israel, your Savior. I have paid a huge price for you. That's how much you mean to me. That's how much I love you. I'd sell off the whole world to get you back. Trade the creation that I've created just for you. Trust me, and I will give you freedom. You were meant for so much more. Amen. <laughs>